0: Talking Feds is coming to Washington, D.C. for six live podcast tapings with a phenomenal array of commentators, July 8th through 11th. Stay tuned after the discussion for more details. Welcome to a holiday weekend episode of Talking Feds. A Prosecutors' Roundtable that brings together some of the best-known former Department of Justice officials for a dynamic discussion of the most important legal topics of the day. This holiday weekend, we're taking a little pause from the ongoing discussion of current events. We're going to have a mini-episode to talk about a quote from a certain former president that many people these days are taking to sum up where things stand. The quote, Public sentiment is everything. With public sentiment, nothing can fail. Without it, nothing can succeed. The president who said it, of course, Abraham Lincoln. I'm Harry Litman. I'm a former United States attorney and deputy assistant attorney general and a current Washington Post columnist. I'm joined by three well-known feds who, along with the rest of us, have been thinking hard about Lincoln's idea. First, Barbara McQuaid returns to Talking Feds. Barb was the United States Attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan, and she is currently a professor from practice at the University of Michigan Law School. On July 3rd, Barb tweeted a very pertinent Abraham Lincoln quote, "'America will never be destroyed from the outside. If we falter and lose our freedoms, it will be because we destroyed ourselves. Welcome back, Barb. We'll return to that quote and what you had in mind with it in a moment.
1: Thanks, Harry. Thanks for inviting me to the conversation.
0: We're also joined by returning Fed Frank Figliuzzi. Frank served for 25 years in the FBI. He retired as the assistant director of the Bureau's Counterintelligence Division in 2012. He's led teams from Atlanta to San Francisco including an office in Silicon Valley exclusively devoted to counterintelligence. Welcome back Frank, happy holiday weekend and thanks for joining us.
2: It's my pleasure Harry, good to be back.
0: And finally, Julie Zebrack returns to Talking Feds. Julie served in the Department of Justice for some 18 years in many roles including Deputy Chief of Staff to the Deputy Attorney General as well as Agency Counsel for the Criminal Division. Very nice to have you again, Julie, welcome back. So glad to be here, Harry. All right, first, a little background on this quote that I think is very pertinent. The quote by Lincoln came in the first debate with Stephen Douglas at Ottawa, Illinois, on August 21st, 1858. In positing a national movement to promote slavery, Lincoln specifically calls out Douglas. He describes why Douglas was so important to the alleged pro-slavery conspiracy. Lincoln said, In this and like communities, public sentiment is everything. With public sentiment, nothing can fail. Without it, nothing can succeed. Consequently, Lincoln continues, He who molds public sentiment goes deeper than he who enacts statutes or pronounces decisions. He makes statutes and decisions possible or impossible to be executed. Thus, the famous quote that's being bandied about these days formed the basis for an attack on a prominent senator who was proclaiming indifference to whether slavery was voted up or down in the territories and was holding to a politically expedient hands-off approach to the most compelling issues of morality and national identity of the day, or even, in this case, in United States history. Douglas attempted to shield himself from any personal responsibility for the prospective growth of slavery. Lincoln insisted on calling him out. He was not only the chair of the Senate Committee on Territories, was Douglas, but also the most powerful Democrat in the country. Immediately after pronouncing that public sentiment is everything, Lincoln went on to state, Judge Douglas is a man of vast influence, so great that it is enough for many men to profess to believe anything when they once find out that Judge Douglas professes to believe it. If you detect echoes to the rhetorical and political stance of Mitch McConnell, and the Senate Republicans' apparent indifference to questions of democratic values and of who we are as a nation. You're not alone. But let's think now about the state of play in the public sentiment in 2019. If Lincoln's maxim is true, what does that portend for the next month or the next year? Barb, let's start with you and an explanation of the other Lincoln quote, about America's faltering only if we destroy ourselves. What did you have in mind by that? And what connection to the current state of affairs were you trying to communicate?
1: You know, I think there's some parallels between those two quotes. They really talk about how the idea that there are influencers, you know, today we talk about social media influencers, but I think there've been influencers throughout American history that can help shape public sentiment, and as Lincoln has said, public sentiment does care, can often carry the day in a country where we use popular elections and the democratic process, but you know, in the Federalist Papers, they talked about this concern about factions leading our country astray, which is why we hold so dear the idea of the rule of law and a constitution, and so even if there is an idea that is politically unpopular, if it violates our constitution, we have that backstop. You know, you can think about, I can remember a time when I was younger and there was a a lot of public sentiment against flag burning, that that should be outlawed and banned because it showed such disrespect to our country and to our troops. But of course, the First Amendment allows even that which we deem despicable if it is an exercise of free speech. And so I think, you know, today the debate really is focused on President Trump's behavior. Should we let him get away with violating the rule of law with some of the behavior that Robert Mueller has uncovered? And if everybody just says, you know, so what, then we just move on. But I I think that those who care about the shared values of America ought to take a moment to step back and say, if we let this president... Run over our values, then what happens with the next president? And is it ever possible to restore those values if we don't put a stop to uh, the attack on them now?
0: And concretely, is that where we are? Is public sentiment now basically, well, is it frozen at an impasse, or are people, is public sentiment largely indifferent? Julie, where do you think things do stand and what would be the implications for what's happening now of Lincoln's uh, idea?
3: I mean, I would argue we're at an impasse because unless we are able to continue the momentum with having folks like Barb and Joyce and John Dean testify, having Bob Mueller testify, continuing to push out the facts and the notion that this is just unacceptable for anyone in our government, let alone a president and administration, I think that what happens is people go back to their daily lives. And so the trick will be to continue to keep the conversation going across the country, not just on TV, not just in the news, but among everyday Americans. You know, Barb, the example that you just gave reminds me of, you were talking about the flag burning and even something else that is less on the constitutional side but equally as compelling was the whole movement about AIDS awareness. Remember how they brought the AIDS quilt to Washington, D.C. and literally laid it on the mall, coming up with ways to keep that conversation going to make sure that the public didn't forget about a whole piece of America and an issue that was so important. And, And showing us the impact that something like that was having on our country. And I think that we're at a time now where public sentiment is swayable, um, and we do have the ability to make that impact, but it ha- we've just got to keep that conversation going.
0: Well, I mean, you say, like, keep it going, but that suggests there's a certain momentum that we just have to harness and not let leak out. But others could see it. I think I would kind of see it that the conversation to date hasn't really made much of a dent. That some kind of new ground has to be staked out. But I, well, let me just start with that notion. Like Frank, like, you know, where are we now? You know, are we half the way there, and have to keep pushing, or in fact, is public sentiment right now basically indifferent?
2: I think Julie's point is a good one which is that th- this thing called public sentiment is not a fixed or static thing but rather is dynamic and subject to being shaped and some would say manipulated and I think the context in which Lincoln made his quote is important because it adds a moral imperative to the shaping yes the shaping of public sentiment so this was in the context of slavery that Lincoln said this and I think we have a moral imperative to continue to shape and influence the public sentiment because sometimes the public sentiment is misguided. That's a polite way of saying sometimes the public sentiment is wrong because of who's done the shaping and the influencing.
0: Yeah, let me follow up with right that. So what's your, what's everybody's diagnosis here? To the extent there is a general indifference – Is it, you know, people are busy with their lives, they have jobs they care about, etc., or do you actually point to certain actors, Mitch McConnell, Bill Barr, Lindsey Graham, as having effectively hijacked the discussion? What brings us to this place of apparent polarization?
3: The fact that we have so much choice now in how we process our news and process information, I mean, the the world that we live in on MSNBC is very different than the world that we live in on Fox News. And I don't think we can underestimate the value of those conversations and how they feed into all of our collective uh, ability to process where things are and how bad they are. If you don't know about children in cages, because no one's telling you about children in cages, then you can't have a reaction. You can't be horrified by it if it's just not part of the discussion. Everybody that you follow on social media, unless you really diversify who you listen to, what you read, really can place you in a bubble of not understanding what is actually happening in parts of the country.
1: Well, I agree with you that to a great extent, the way we get our news influences the way we see the world. And that's a big part of what's going on right now. But I'll also add that I think Attorney General William Barr and President Trump himself have worked very hard to shape the narrative to suggest that Robert Mueller found no collusion, no obstruction. When William Barr got Robert Mueller's report, he sat on it for more than three weeks. And he pushed out his own, he won't call it a summary, but top line findings. And Instead, the evidence did not establish conspiracy or collusion, and he said that he concluded that there was no obstruction of justice. And so for 24 days, President Trump was able to say, Mueller found no collusion and no obstruction, and most people ran with that. He's the president. He's got the bully pulpit. He's on television. He's on Twitter. He's pounding his message every day. He is a master promoter of himself and his message. And I think that really seeped into the public consciousness. And by the time the report came along, four hundred and forty-eight wonky pages, people had mostly moved on. And the message was, you know, in McConnell's words,
0: Game case close. Right. Yeah. Well, that suggests, by the way, that uh Mueller's upcoming testimony on the seventeenth actually could have a real impact in breaking through. Do you think there's a real prospect of changing the dynamic there or between Fox News and Trump and the other things we've mentioned, are we pretty much fated to a a continued kind of impasse until at least the election?
2: There are increasing indicators, unfortunately, that we've reached a point where the public sentiment may become solidified and that people have basically attached themselves to their person, their candidate, their notion of what's right and wrong, and that we're really not going to see a large movement away from that. But I, I want to really emphasize back to this issue of a moral imperative when it comes to public sentiment, that Congress throwing up their hands and saying, well, the public sentiment's not there for impeachment, therefore we're not going to move forward with it. I think is an acquiescence that's really unfortunate, because I I think there's an opportunity, and again, even a moral imperative, to engage in an effort to shape the public sentiment when you believe that the person who's doing the manipulating, and perhaps even winning the hearts and minds, is doing so with ill intent or has his own interest and not the national uh, interest at heart. So long way of saying, I'm glad that we finally are going to see Mueller on the Hill. I don't think it's going to hugely cause a dynamic shift in thought, but I think it's imperative that it happen. And I think that this kind of fatalistic attitude I see from some members of Congress that, well, if the public's not not really behind this, we're not going to pursue it. I think there are times in in the history of a country where morality dictates that you got to fight. You got to fight for the hearts and minds of the people.
0: So I couldn't agree more, and I think you put it beautifully. As did Lincoln. One of the um, we're going to be talking about the series of tapings we're going to be doing in Washington, but one of them is with prominent Republicans: Bill Kristol, Peter Kaisler, Carrie Cordero, who got off the Trump train early, and it's for just this reason. We have this incommensurate weighing from their, you know, point of view. They're fine with tax cuts and Brett Kavanaugh and Neil Gorsuch, but it's just so incommensurate with the attack on U.S. values, democratic institutions, national identity, and to ignore one in favor of the other is just profoundly almost faithless to the American project. That sounds grand, but it's so. And just in analyzing this dynamic, so... We have the apparent either acquiescence of the Republican Party. Of course, there's the administration and the attorney general, as Barb noted. What other sort of components do you perceive for the war, as you put it, Frank, for the hearts and minds? Who else has to be sort of you know, fought through and confronted to really make the case?
2: Well, no one is proving Lincoln's quote more than the Russian intelligence services.
0: Great point. Yeah.
2: Our adversaries know full well the importance of winning the hearts and minds of the American people. Uh, The Russians did it on steroids, and the Mueller report details in great, great investigative detail, including the names and locations of foreign and Russian intelligence officers, efforts by Russia to win the public sentiment and shape it. And it's a perfect example, Harry, of where the public sentiment might be strong, but strongly misguided and shaped by an adversary, because what you think you're seeing in social media is not reality. And so I think there's no better example than the Russian social media propaganda campaign to warn us that We've got to filter what we're taking in from all sources, whether it's the White House, whether it's the Kremlin um or whether it's where we get our news.
0: yeah, boy, is that a great point? I mean, what I just said before made it seem like a a moral imperative, and it is, but it's also a geopolitical one. I mean, if we again play the saps as it were, to foreign adversaries, you know that itself just imperils our constitutional values. Well, you know, this is a short episode, and so we won't do the kind of five words or less, but I'd be interested in everybody's views about whether there is a reasonable prospect of breaking through before the election, whether we're fated to essentially have the same dynamic as we uh, now have and the what seems to many of us almost almost a bewildering uh, indifference to a bill of particulars about this president and the administration that seems to exceed that of Richard Nixon, Andrew Johnson, any other administrations in the past. I'll seed uh, my normal cleanup role and start here and just say that pessimistically, I think the answer is yes. I mean, I uh, I'd love to be. Um, Proven wrong, or, or even discuss other views, but I think a little bit, as Frank was saying, things are, are now either frozen, or for many people there, they have taken the McConnell mantra of moving ahead, and that's going to accelerate with the elections coming up, and the prospects for really holding to account in real time over the next year or two, I think are... Quickly fading. There's my July 4th <laughs> optimistic prognosis. Julie, you want to, you have any thoughts, bottom line thoughts about that?
3: So I'm going to try to remain optimistic. And I wish I could say, I mean, look, the numbers only go up for the number of Congress folks who are open to impeachment. Uh, I wish that there was some mechanism other than a phone that folks could be calling their Congress. Men, congresswomen, and senators, and expressing their concern because yeah. the issue is that people are just moving on. But if you catch them and you ask them if they care, I think that they do. I really do think a lot of people care. But how is that message getting communicated, and how is it changing the sentiment of their elected officials such that Nancy Pelosi is getting the message? I've got to remain optimistic yeah. because it's still quite a ways to 2020.
0: Yes, mums can. <laughs> Frank?
2: Let's see what happens with public sentiment after the Mueller, Mueller testimony. Yeah. And um, and then what comes out of the closed door sessions? I know that closed door, by definition, is not supposed to leak out, but we know that his team, the Mueller team, is going to be speaking with the intel committees. And inevitably, we're going to get some kind of generic summaries that come out of that. My takeaway from this conversation um, and my emphasis is, look, even when you think the public sentiment is locked in, that does not excuse those with differing opinions to walk away from the table and give up on reshaping or causing a rethinking of that sentiment.
0: Here, here, Barb?
1: I think Robert Mueller's testimony can play a very important role in shaping public sentiment. And I think we need to think about it not so much as looking backwards and about punishing wrongdoing, but about looking forward and understanding how best to protect our country. I think there are still many people who do not know the content of Robert Mueller's report, and just hearing him explain some of these episodes is going to be shocking to people, like sharing polling data for Michigan, uh, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin with Russians, knowing that they had a social media propaganda campaign And then knowing that President Trump won upset victories in all of those states, I think that and and many other details will be shocking to people. And again, not so much to rehash the past, but how do we protect our country going forward? And to realize that President Trump tried to stop and curtail the investigation so that it would focus only on future investigations to shield himself and his campaign from investigation, I think really demonstrates the way he undermined his own responsibility to protect the national security of our country. And so I'm hopeful that when those things get exposed, as we learn about lessons that Robert Mueller learned in his investigation, so that Congress can consider whether it needs to enact new laws or do things to protect our election in the future. I think that uh, some of those really sobering details are going to hit home in the American public and could very well change public sentiment.
0: Those are very fair points. And I'll just say in counterpoint to what I first offered. That if you believe, and this goes back to the Lincoln quote, that really the sort of political ostrich head in the sand behavior of the Republicans in the Senate is a huge concomitant, that that and the I'd say the kind of Fox News culture are really the huge contributors to the overall indifference of at least the Trump base, it would only take, as it did with Nixon, one, two, three, four, you know, senators to get off the train and say, we're talking about serious things, if only looking forward to maybe dislodge the overall kind of frozen state we're in. So certainly the uh, testimony on the 17th, you, you can imagine how how it could be a, a really um, important part of that. Fingers crossed. All right. Thank you very much, to Frank Julie Barb for joining us on a holiday and a look back to Lincoln and forward to the 2020 election and hope that the ideas about public sentiment actually can be can bear fruit in our current day
3: Here, here. <laughs> thanks Harry thanks Harry
0: always a pleasure thanks before we go we've got a very special announcement so listen up Talking Feds is coming to Washington, D.C., July 8th through 11th, Monday through Thursday for a four-day series of six podcast tapings. We'll be at the Georgetown University Law Center's Institute for Constitutional Advocacy and Protection for a series entitled, After Mueller, Challenges and Prospects for U.S. Democratic Institutions. The series is also being co-sponsored by the American Constitution Society. Head over to TalkingFeds.com slash news to reserve your seat. But let me also tell you about the lineup of episodes we're going to be taping because we are extremely excited about it. We lead off Monday at 10 a.m. with an episode with my Personal idol and hero Jamie Gorelick, the former deputy attorney general. This one is about protecting the department from political interference. It also features Paul Fishman, who had very high up roles in the department and was the United States Attorney for the District of New Jersey, and Amy Jeffress, who likewise had important roles in the department and then as an assistant U.S. Attorney, both of whom you know from this podcast. Next is The Pardon Power. This one's co-sponsored by the American Constitution Society. It features Bob Bauer, the former White House counsel, as well as Margaret Love, the former pardon attorney, and Rachel Barkow, the vice dean of NYU Law School and a longtime scholar of the pardon power and related concepts. So, it goes to the heart of the importance of the power and what has happened to it and the way it's been used for the last few presidencies, with a focus, of course, on President Trump. Next, we have a panel with Republicans for the Rule of Law, also the Checks and Balances Group. That includes Bill Kristol, Peter Keisler, the former acting attorney general and Carrie Cordero professor at Georgetown they will be talking about the important tug of war that these last 2 years have presented between basic democratic values and republican interests and why that group has very strongly cast its vote and lot against what it sees as some of the aberrations even abominations of the Trump Presidency. We'll next have a panel focusing on the Institute for Constitutional Advocacy and Protection and some of its important work that steps into the breach of the inaction of the current uh, administration. And then we'll close out with two episodes specifically pointing towards Mueller's testimony on the 17th. The first with Ron Klain, Matt Miller and Tim Lynch. Generally discussing what Congress should be doing, the tactics here, how it needs to go about questioning uh, Mueller in general and what it can hope to achieve. And then an even more nuts and bolts episode with trial lawyers, Glenn Kirshner of Feds fame, as well as William Jeffress Jr., the one of the premier trial lawyers in the country and Elliot Williams, which will be a very specific, small-gauge discussion of particular lines of questioning that the House might choose to proffer with Bob Mueller. If all of this sounds interesting, and really, how can it not, uh, and you're in or near Washington, D.C. next week, you can go to our website, TalkingFeds.com slash news and click on the links to reserve your seat. It's free, and anyone from the public can attend. If you're not in D.C., don't worry. All the episodes will end up right here throughout the summer. Okay, thank you very much to Barb, Frank, and Julie, and thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds today. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast or even tell a friend about us. You can follow us on Twitter at TalkingFedsPod to find out about future episodes and other Feds related content, including first and foremost, the six episodes from DC that will be taped live next week. And you can also check us out on the web at TalkingFeds.com. We want to know what you want to know. So submit your questions to questions at TalkingFeds.com, whether it's for five words or fewer, or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segment. Thanks for tuning in. Happy 4th of July. And don't worry, as long as you need answers, the feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Jenny Josephson, Dave Moldovan, Anthony Lemos, and Rebecca Lopatin. David Lieberman is our contributing writer. Production assistance by Sarah Philippoum and Michelle Beaulieu. And thanks to the incredible Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Doledo, LLC. I'm Harry Litman. See you in Washington.